practicing pediatrician, an expert on vaccines, and the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, which is credited with saving hundreds of lives daily, Dr. Paul Offit has taken his command of science and created ways of communicating with the masses. Besides appearing on the Colbert Report, he has written six medical narratives, including his book entitled Bad Faith, When Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine, which was selected by the New York Times Book Review as an editor's choice book. We had the chance to sit down and talk with Dr. Paul Offit about his creativity in medicine. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So um, we're sitting here with Dr. Paul Offit, and it's great to meet you. Thank you for taking the time. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? So I'm working with Don Mitchell and Gloria Lewis on uh, two things. One is a movie called um, Hilleman, The Perilous Quest to Save the World's Children. It's about a man who is the father of modern vaccines, who made nine of the 14 vaccines that we currently give to children, whose work probably saves about 8 million lives a year, and whose name nobody knows. Um, so we're, we've made this film, um, and we have submitted it to a number of film festivals. We actually won a film festival. And, um, and then the more important part of that project, we have a series of animations in the movie, but we have a number of other animations that we're going to use as um, sort of the basis for these educational modules that we're going to now try and uh, get into elementary schools, junior high and high school students to try and educate children about vaccines. I think nobody really does that much. I think children's understanding of vaccines is that they hurt, and we're trying to get future parents to understand what vaccines are, how they work, and why it's so important to get them. And that's the main project that you're working on now? Right. Well, I'm book. I have a book um, called Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, which is seven scientific inventions that changed the world for the worse. Wow. Um, that'll come out in April. And then I'm working on another book that actually I'm fairly close to finishing that just has the title um, Lost in the Funhouse, Some Hard-Earned Advice on How to Promote Science and Health in an Age of Fear and Unreason. This is something we really wanted to talk with you about. Um, so if it's not too much of a spoiler from your book, what have you learned about strategies for educating either individuals or uh, larger groups, communities, about science in an age when, as you described, maybe an age of unreason? Um, it's hard. I think you have to, in many ways, counter everything you learned as a scientist. I mean, I think, frankly, what you learned as a scientist what, and the way you were trained as a scientist was, was the opposite of the training for what you need to do, I think, to be a successful communicator. Um, when you write and publish a scientific paper based on data, your paper is judged as being excellent in, to the degree that you stick to the data. You don't go beyond the data in your discussion section. And, and also the scientific method um, allows you to show that one thing is associated with another at a certain level of statistical power, and that's it. I mean, you can, you can show that, uh, that if you get autism following receipt of the MMR vaccine, it's not any greater than would be expected by chance alone. Mm -hmm. But that's all you can say. You can only say these two things are or aren't associated to a certain level of statistical power. What you can never say, really, what the data never allow you to say is MMR doesn't cause autism. But you better get over that when you're trying to deal with the media because um, anything else is, is, is you know, seen as leaving the door. But the fact is MMR doesn't cause autism, so you just have to get willing to do that. And you have to be able to take what are, you know, I think, sophisticated concepts and try and reduce them to sound bites that work. 
which is again the opposite of your training. It, it feels at some level intellectually dishonest to do that mm -hmm. at some level. So you have to sort of get past that because in this case, I mean, in our case, where we're trying to educate about vaccines so the children aren't hurt by being left vulnerable, um, you have to be willing to be more of an advocate in some ways. Um, you know, you have to deal with the politics of it. And it's hard because in the scientific world, you, um, your data are judged on its reproducibility and re robustness and its common sense and logic. But that is not the way it works in the trying to educate the public about science world. Right. There it's a political process. And you're often the target of, of the way things work politically, which is you're personally attacked or you're sued or you got a death threat or two or three in my case. And you, yeah, and so you, you have to be able to, to, to live with that. You have to be strong. It's a different it's a different world. Mm -hmm. It's a political world, really. Mm -hmm. And do you how have you dealt with the fact that it does feel a little bit intellectually dishonest? How do you how do you sort of deal with that? Do you rationalize it by, as you said, saying, you know, it will help the children? Um, do you have conversations with colleagues? How do you deal with A, rationalize it by the fact that it helps children. I mean, there's not a year that goes by where we don't see a child admitted to this hospital who dies from a vaccine-preventable disease invariably because the parent made the choice not to vaccinate them. So that's sort of the eye on the prize for me. And mm -hmm. you do what you have to do to not let that happen. Mm -hmm. So even though, um, right. you know, it's not... You have entered a world that's not a scientific world anymore. Now it's a political world. You just do it. You do what you have to do. One thing our website is interested in is merging physicians with other worlds, and it's this is something you've done very naturally. Has it felt natural to you? Are you sort of a natural advocate? We know you're a natural scientist. We know you're one of the co-discoverers of the rotavirus and have done many other uh, very laudable scientific um, projects. So has being an advocate felt natural to you or has that uh, come with some experience and training? I think, I think being an advocate is natural. I mean, I see children, I think I was drawn to pediatrics because I saw children as vulnerable and uh, at some level helpless. And, and so I saw myself as someone who could help in that. And I, I think it probably relates back to my childhood, I, you know, where I was, uh, you know, hospitalized as a child in a polio ward for a couple months, and these were the time before they had visiting hours. So I think I saw those children as vulnerable and helpless and alone. I think mm -hmm. that image was always sort of in my head. So I always think I've been a passionate advocate for children. Could you actually tell us how you ended up as a scientist uh, and, and physician? Was it your early days in the polio ward or something else? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I, and I um, was in the polio ward actually for a, uh, a club foot repair. And so okay. I was in, the, it just took a long time, I guess, to, to repair because I was there for weeks. But I certainly saw all those children who were severely crippled by polio. Um, and I had, I had a splenectomy when I was younger for, I had splenic ruptures, secondary trauma. Um, so there were, I was just sort of in the hospital a lot when I was about five years old. And, and so that, I think that's one thing. Um, and, and, you know, it just seemed attractive, the notion of being a doctor, but you don't know. I mean, you, you know, when you're that age, young, 16, 17, 18, you think you know what you want. And so I assumed I would be a clinician. I would be a pediatrician. And, um, but when I went and did my pediatric residency, I really, loved infectious diseases. You know, there was a mentor who named Ellen Wald who was just really 
great as a mentor. She was so smart and so well-spoken and, and just everything made sense. Somehow the world of infectious diseases made sense. And so I thought I would be a pediatrician with an expertise in, or a special interest in infectious disease. And so I did a fellowship here in infectious disease, but the second year of which was research, and I loved it. I just loved the process of research. It was just so ordered, uh, the notion that you could answer questions that you had. And my first year in research was, was wildly unsuccessful. I mean, I had a created a panel of monoclonal antibodies against rotavirus structural proteins, which people had already done. I really never got past that. But towards the end of that year, we made a, uh, were able to create a small animal model for the study of the disease, which didn't exist at that time. And that enabled us to answer a lot of questions about rotavirus pathogenesis and immunogenesis, which was the next 10 years worth of work. So it was just fun. I, it was just fun. You know, you had this puzzle you were trying to put together, and you could do that. Mm -hmm. It was just fun. So, I mean, I just kept my head down and tried to, you know, do what you do in science, which is, is do good do experiments that work, and then hopefully get those experiments published, and then hopefully get your next grant. I mean, yeah. I, I just mm -hmm. was pretty much my head down. But as, as time went on, and it was 26 years in the making of that vaccine, sort of 10 years to do the research and 16 years to do the research of development, um, I came to really appreciate vaccines. And what ended up happening for me was um, because I, Mer Maurice Hillman was at Merck and I came to know him because our vaccine was made by Merck. Mm -hmm. um, and the more I learned about him, I thought, wow, I mean, he's this great guy. I and mean, he was diagnosed with disseminated adenocarcinoma that had already spread to his lungs and to his mm -hmm. abdomen and was given about six months to live. I thought, here's this amazing guy and all these stories are going to die with him. So mm -hmm. I sat down with him and asked if he wouldn't mind if I could just interview him. And we did that for like 60 hours over a period of that six months that he lived before he passed away. And then that became, you know, the book Vaccinated, right. One Man's Quest to Feed yeah. the World's Deadliest Diseases, which ultimately became this movie. But I, I just thought, you know, and with that, with reading sort of everything he'd written and then putting it in historical perspective is really how I came to learn about the history of vaccines. I had a sense of how hard it was to make one vaccine, our rotavirus mm -hmm. vaccine. Here's a guy who'd made nine. I mean, mm -hmm. it was like trying to imagine different dimension and fifth dimension. And so then where did your career evolve from uh, after that? How did you, it sounds like that was your jumping off point for starting to be a writer, um, or had you, had, you been, had you been a writer before that? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. So um, I was uh, funded through the R1 mechanism from NIH really until the year 2006. Um, mm. And, but during that time I started to write. And so I wrote initially uh, Vice books. I wrote a book that was first called What Every Parent Should Know About Vaccines. It's now in its sort of fourth edition called Vaccines in Your Child, um, Separating Fact from Fiction. And then I wrote a book about antibiotics called Breaking the Antibiotic Habit, just about sort of antibiotic overuse and how one could use them more judiciously. And so that was fun. I liked to write. I mean, I actually was one of those persons that actually liked to write papers and liked to write grants. I'm probably the only person <laughs> actually liked to write grants. So I liked the process of writing. <laughs> And then, sort of, you know, I, I, the Cutter Incident became my first narrative nonfiction book, just mm -hmm. uh, about this polio vaccine gone wrong. You know, a polio vaccine was made in 1955 by Cutter Laboratories that um, was, I think, probably the worst biological disaster in our history. It was a vaccine that wasn't appropriately inactivated, so about 120,000 children were given live, fully virulent polio virus. About 40,000 developed abortive polio. About 200 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. And I wanted to understand how that could happen. Because what I'd heard from even people like Dr. Hilleman and, and uh, others was that there was a, uh, a bad player at Cutter who was sort of cut corners. And just at the time in the 1950s with the interest in, in preventing polio, I just couldn't believe that was true. And 
Um, so with the help of Neil Nathanson here at Penn, who was an epidemiology and epidemiological intelligence officer then, um, he sort of directed me to things at the CDC that I could find and databases that I could find. So I really spent eight years actually doing research on that book. That's actually my favorite book. It's certainly the most researched book, trying to figure out what happened at Cutter Laboratories. And that's my favorite chapter in that book. And it was really the birth of vaccine regulation in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, it was published and I got interested in writing narrative nonfiction. How do you choose what you want to make into a book and like do deep research in? Um, and like what you want to make into say a movie? Like how do you make those choices? how you spend your time writing. It's just what's interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, that, so all these, Cutter Institute, Vaccinated, Autism, False Profit, Deadly Choices are all vaccine books. Yeah. Um, the Do You Believe in Magic, I think, came about when our hospital was considering doing things like alternative medicine and acupuncture. It really upset mm -hmm. me, quite frankly, and I just wanted to exercise the demons that came with all that uh, mm -hmm. by writing a book, and that helped. Um, yeah. And with bad faith, it was because I lived through the 1991 Philadelphia measles epidemic, where, you know, you think about last year's measles epidemic. Mm -hmm. In 2015, there were, you know, 25 states, 189 children, but there were no deaths. In, in our city in 1991, we had 1,400 cases and nine deaths in one city um, over a several-month period when we had a vaccine. And it centered on two, uh, you know, two fundamentalist churches that chose not only not to vaccinate their children, but not to get health care for their children. And there was never any, any re recompense or recourse for that. You, 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 know, the, you can do that. You can choose to medically neglect your child in the name of God. And as long as you say it's in the name of God, no one can touch you. And that really upset me. I just think that the 44 states, and we're one of them, that have uh, religious exemptions to child abuse and neglect laws, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. If it's child abuse and neglect, then how can it be religious? Do you ever speak with patients anymore about, are you, are you still, you're still mm -hmm. practicing? Okay, so um, when you have that conversation, what would you say now to a family that either is ignoring a progressive illness or doesn't want to get a vaccine? Yeah, nothing that works, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, no, we had, there's a, um, the ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish community um, often practices a uh, circumcision ritual called Metzitzah Bepeh, whereby instead of cleaning off the, um, the circumcision wound with sterile gauze, they actually suck up the blood with their mouth, based on a statement in the 5th century AD Babylonian Talmud, which can, not surprisingly, introduce herpes simplex virus into that child. And we had a case here not too long ago, a child who had systemic herpes. So HSV in the bloodstream, had herpes pneumonitis, had a mild herpes encephalitis, was treated with three weeks of intravenous acetylene and recovered. But, you know, um, it was touchy. So, and so I talked to the father and the mother. The mother didn't think there was any relationship between the herpes simplex virus lesions around this child's genital area and the fact that the moil had used his mouth to suck off the blood. Um, I called the moil that night, by the way, and the moil, uh, he was pretty good about it. I mean, he certainly realized at least that he was the cause. He had the false notion that if he could rinse his mouth out with wine and then spit it onto the genital area, that that would, would sterilize his mouth, which obviously wasn't true, and as he proved. Um, and he thought that if he didn't have active lesions, evident lesions in his mouth, blisters in his mouth, that he therefore couldn't transmit the virus, which also he'd proven wasn't true, and we know isn't true. Um, but the father, the father was, um, he at least agreed that those two things were associated, but he said that, um, quote, you know, we've been doing this for thousands of years. So what I said to him was, but here's what we haven't been doing for thousands of years. We haven't been giving a cyclivir for thousands of years. We've only been giving that really since the 1980s. So which is it? 
Has anything worked? Has any? Have you ever had a conversation that's that's worked with a deeply religious person? Who? who no, I, I can safely say no. Or with a you know uh, someone who is a. Vaccines cause autism. In the yeah, it depends how how firmly committed they are. I mean, if, if someone is a conspiracy theorist and believes that you know there's just a conspiracy among the uh, the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical industry, and the uh, and the federal government to just you know sell product at any cost, then you're not going to convince them. But if people, there are many people out who are convincible, who with data presented in a cogent way and emotionally framed, will be will be convinced. I, I convince people, but. It depends if they're if they're conspiracy theorists, no, because they just see me as part of the conspiracy. Sometimes I feel like in even in medical school, like I definitely get the impression that as physicians, we're expected to be apolitical in some way. Like we're not expected to discuss political preferences with our patients or make it clear what our preferences are. And I was wondering if, like now, you're very well established beyond just your clinical practice in terms of being an expert on the subject and being like the communicator for this, but when you started advocating on behalf of vaccines and you started, um, you know, researching things like religion and medicine and making statements about it, did you feel pushback from your colleagues or from patients who saw you and had read your work? Did you ever feel like it, it was kind of more difficult as a physician to make these statements? Well, yeah, so here's what I would say. I think. I was trained differently than you're being trained as a medical student. Um, at the time I was training, doctors were more condescending, more pedantic, um, more all seen as all-knowing and perfectly willing to accept this role as being all-knowing. Today, you're much more open to all different sort of attitudes and beliefs, certainly cultural backgrounds, and you don't push. You know, you're, you're, we like to think we're making decisions with people, in concert with people, which means at some level we cede our expertise. And so at some level, we're willing to watch people make bad decisions that can hurt their children because of that, I think, at some level, because you can't, you feel bad at some level, it works against your training to really be very strongly prescriptive. Um, that's starting to change a little bit in the vaccine world. You're starting to see people that are much more active about this. Let me love your child. Don't put me in a position of sending your child out into a world that's progressively more dangerous. Don't ask me to practice substandard care. I can't do it. And some people will actually fire the patient from their practice. And I would say 60% of practices in suburban Philadelphia do that. So. Um, but, but I think you do pay a certain price for being definitive in, in the public eye um, because scientists and physicians know that you're at some level going against your training. You know? So then you take a strong stance. You um, invite some negative comments from people who would prefer that you were more equivocal. But if you were more equivocal, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't win. So it seems as it seems like you feel very comfortable being prescriptive about this. Yeah, because the science supports us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, you know, it's parents every day are choosing not to vaccinate their children, at least in some manner, and and those children are now in harm's way. And so, and we see it. I mean, I work in a big hospital that is both a primary and tertiary care center, which is to say we got a lot of referrals. So we see those kids, and it's unconscionable. Medicine's hard enough as it is. I mean, there's so much we don't know. This we do know. Vaccines work, and they're safe. And and the choice not to to give them is a choice made, made on bad information. So our job is to get good information out there in a, in a dramatic and compelling way and heartfelt way. It's okay to do that. So if the science were less strong, say, you know, about something else, um, you wouldn't 
you wouldn't feel as comfortable being as prescriptive. Right. Right. So your level of comfort with that is sort of exactly correlated with how strong you think the science yes. is. And that, to me, feels appropriate as a, as a physician. I think that's true. We do get a lot of training about sort of accepting other people's beliefs and less training, which is fabulous, but less training about sort of, um, we do motivational interviewing, as I'm sure you know all about, but we don't, um, I don't really know how to do that very well, how to sit with a patient, and I encountered this a lot as a PDNP too, and they said no go on vaccines, it's, you can't really, you can't really do anything about it, which is why I think um, what you're doing is so amazing. I mean, you're engaging with popular culture, um, but you still are firmly rooted in science. I'm also older than you are yeah. considerably. So, so I saw these diseases growing up. Yeah. I mean, I had these. I had measles. I had mumps. I had German mm-hmm. measles. I had chickenpox. I had these diseases. Um, so for me, it's an easy sell. I mean, I saw what these diseases could do. You didn't. I mean, you really haven't. I mean, vaccines are largely a victim of their own success. If you saw these diseases, I mean, I was, on a, I was in a polio ward as a child. So I know what all that looks like. And so I know the horror that one is potentially leaving their child at risk for much more than you do. Um, it's not just young parents. It's young doctors and, or clinicians that don't see this either. So you're much less compelled by these diseases. Yeah, I, I would be interested to hear um, any other sort of tidbits about patients that you've had. I noticed a lot of times you sort of speak like an epidemiologist. You, you use numbers. Um, and I think sometimes people really respond to like one patient and their story. Um, so I'm wondering if you have anything that personally motivates you, a personal a patient story um, about getting affected by a preventable disease or anything else that you may want to share? Well, I think for me, entering, for example, the rotavirus world, I saw a child die of rotavirus when I was a resident, so that, that was in my head. You know, there's an eight-month-old or so from uh, the Appalachian region in, in the Pittsburgh area who, mm-hmm. I mean, who had, you know, the mother was great. She listened to the doctor. The child had fever and vomiting, didn't have much diarrhea at that point, but fever and vomiting, and she tried to do what the doctor asked, give frequent sips of fluids containing minerals and sugar, and, and she couldn't get the child to hold anything down because he was vomiting. And when she came, when the child came into our emergency department, she was really shocky, and we couldn't revive her. Ultimately, and we did something called uh, like clysis, I guess, where you take a bone marrow needle and drill it into the proximal tibia, and then try and in, in, introduce fluids there because we couldn't get a, a, a line into her. And she died. And then we went out and told the mother that her previously healthy daughter was dead. And, and that, you know, that image is always in your head. So yeah, I think the images of the patients drive you, but. Um, it's not quite as hard to talk to parents as you think to be prescriptive. When you see that, I mean, as you grow up in this and you start to see children die, these, I mean, we just had a child die of pneumococcus in the past week here. And you see that, you see the way the parents react, and as a parent yourself, you know how you would react, and it's just, and now somebody comes to you and says, I don't want to vaccinate, and it's not hard to say, look, here's what this can look like. Right. Right. So I'm sort of wondering your thoughts on advocacy in medicine in general, sort of off of your question about um, we're taught to be fairly apolitical. Um, so 
do you think that that should be at the level of comfort to the medical provider or do you think that it is our obligation as physicians and future physicians and other healthcare providers to be advocates as well? I think pediatricians are advocates for the children that they see. And while I think it's great to be open to sort of all attitudes and beliefs and cultural backgrounds, that's great to a point. But the point is when a parent makes a bad decision based on bad information, there you're not, I don't think it was fair actually to respect the, the religious belief of someone who didn't want to vaccinate their child or give them medical care. That's not, there's nothing to respect about that. I think it's a, a horrible thing to do to your child. Your child doesn't have any say in this matter and it's not okay and somebody should stand up for the children, whether it's the state by not allowing these religious exemptions to child abuse and neglect laws or for the physician who's standing there. It's okay to be upset. I think it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be pointed. I mean, I've certainly been thrown out of parents' rooms when, you know, I've said to a parent, a parent of a child who has such chronic lung disease who could die of pneumococcus or die of influenza, both of which are pathogens that can affect lung. I say, you know, I think you should vaccinate your child and they throw me out of the room but at least I said it and there was one actually this, this was uh, not too long ago it was in the last few months the mother had there was a five-year-old who was here for something unrelated like it was it was a bacterial infection of the hip but it wasn't caused by a, a vaccine preventable bacteria and um, you know she was really proud she hadn't vaccinated her child and I asked her why and she you know gave me the usual awful reasons for why it causes autism whatever and and then she and I was gonna leave it because I knew there was there was no convincing her but um, then she said, you know, she got chicken pox, and look, she's fine. So this was her, her sort of example of why it is that you can get these. And I said to her, um, and so now, because of that decision, your child has living silently in the nervous system, essentially a wild-type chicken pox virus, a natural chicken pox virus. Therefore, she is much more likely to get shingles when she gets older than if she'd gotten the chicken pox vaccine. That's what you've done, okay? Just, I, just want you to know, I just want you to know that that's what you've done, because I don't think you know that. And she threw me out of the room. <laughs> yeah. And and you know it's not, and it's like you know, you do the best you can. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's okay to be pointed. I understand it's the opposite of what we're trained to do. <laughs> but somebody should say it because that child is lying there now and has has you know wild type virus cell living lately in the nervous system, and and for, and for what? Yeah. It's just too yeah. painful. Do you think that having the internet has given people more ammunition to? disagree with things like that you tell them like you know you should get your child vaccinated that were previously like that was the only voice you heard the voice of the doctor telling you that but now you can google it and then see all these anti-vaccine articles and statements do you think do you feel like in your practice that the internet has actually allowed the anti-vaccine movement to become stronger yes because what you have is you have um a community a community that would be much harder to find if there wasn't the internet. So it's a national and international community of people who are like-minded, who have the same belief that you do, which is largely a belief in conspiracy, because that's what you would have to believe. I mean, if you worried that MMR causes autism, you should know that there are 17 studies that show that it doesn't. So to believe that, that it still does means that you have to believe there is a vast international conspiracy among all these researchers on several different continents to hide the truth. Most reasonable people don't believe that. But you can find enough people, hundreds, on the internet who will support that belief. So now you have your community. You're bolstered by your community. One of my final questions is what you would say to uh, young physician advocates about anything you want to say. Well, yeah, I, I think um, you should 
do what's fun. I mean, what, what feels just to you and don't feel ashamed about pursuing it and pursuing it hard. It's okay. I think it's okay to take strong positions, but you know, and when you take strong positions, you're going to get pushback. I, I, I'll give you a perfect example. I had to speak once in front of the Connecticut State Legislature, and when I was done talking about vaccine safety, a woman came up to me at the end and just screamed at me. I mean, just screamed at me. I dared to say that vaccines didn't cause autism. She knew for a fact that they did, and she just let me. But that always gets me. It always bothers me. You never get hardened to the fact that yeah. someone screaming at you makes you feel bad. And you should get hardened to that fact. It always upsets me. As she was driving me, this legislator was driving me back to the train station. She said something I'll never forget, and I think it's true. You know you've gotten to the center of things when you meet the very best people and the very worst people. So that's true. But you do get to meet the very best people. And, and that's it's, I mean, people who are, are, have uh, far um, less of a dog in the hunt than you, who are perfectly willing to stand up to this. I was going to ask, um, what's like, you're, you've done so many things. What's your proudest moment, or what are you most proud of, kind of looking back at? Well, professionally, it's that, that moment, I guess, when our vaccine was licensed and recommended, both of which occurred in the same month. And I remember um, it was an effort. You know, it was 26 years of a lot of go, no, go decisions of a lot of, you know, because you're trying to get the company to, to, to do this $1.2 billion project. And it's certainly not, it's a lot of money to do research and development for not a lot of money for them back. I mean, it's not, vaccines are only given once or a few times in your lifetime. They're not given every day. I mean, that's where the, you know, the blockbusters are. There's no such thing as a blockbuster vaccine. So they're always right on the verge of dropping the product. So, or, and, and, you know, it's just we knew that here's a virus that kills 2,000 children a day in the developing world. And, you know, we knew that we're living in an age when the technology could prevent that. So we just really wanted them to do this, you know. So it was always such an effort. And then, I remember right after um, it was recommended, so licensure early in February recommended, later in February I had to go give a talk at St. Jude's Hospital, but I had, I was in Atlanta watching it get recommended at the CDC, and then I had to go to St. Jude's, um, you know, also in the South, so I didn't have to, uh, I didn't come back to Philly, so, but I, uh, it was a day early, so I was just walking around, I remember I was in the Martin Luther King Museum uh, there, and uh, crying. I just started crying, and I think it was because all that 26-year effort just kind of got crystallized in that moment, because there was a moment, you know, where it now had come to fruition, whereas that's not generally true in science. I mean, in science, there's not really the eureka moment. Mm -hmm. It's more like two steps forward, one step back. It's just always a struggle. It's not that clear moment of success, but this was. Thank you to Dr. Paul Offit for sharing his story about creativity in medicine, and thanks to all of you for listening. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at doctorscreate. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com, to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Tries Me Rescue.